Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. I work in a dying industry and newspapers will die. What happens to you when you know you're going to die? Well, it does focus the mind somewhat. Uh, it, it brings to the fore certain existential questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What has it all been about? It might even raise the question of, is death the end? Is there life after death? What am I going to leave behind me? And it, it also, of course, raises the question of, help, is there any medicine that can fix me or at least keep me going for a little while longer? This podcast is about the digital direction of newspapers. It's part of our lecture series from the Houston School of Film and Digital Media in Galway, part of the University of Ireland. In it, Hugh Linehan, the digital development editor of the Irish Times, takes a frank and sweeping look at the challenges facing newspapers, in print and online. I'm the digital development editor of the Irish Times, which is a kind of a sign of the meaningless jargonistic titles which, uh, which uh, new ventures tend to generate in newspapers. Up until last autumn, I was the online editor of the Irish Times, which is in a way a kind of a clearer job title, I think, from most people's point of view, but had become an increasingly archaic, uh, anachronistic sort of a title because it implied that there was something called online within the Irish Times and then there was something called print or in fact in most people's minds there was something called the Irish Times and there was something called the online Irish Times so it had been as a concept it had been archaic for quite a long time because of various changes which I might touch on a little bit later which we implemented last year in terms of both the technological platforms that we work on the workflows we do, people's jobs and, uh, and how we do things like publish content, it became even more anachronistic, so we, we, we restructured last year. It was a point at which um, we were integrating, which we always seem to be doing in some way or another, integrating our digital processes more into the, kind of the heart of our journalism. What that meant in this case was, in, this was in 2008, we were um, irishtimes.com or ireland.com as it had been up until then had been employed, had been structured in a different company with journalists who worked for a different company with different conditions of employment and they were, among which they were paid less uh, and they worked longer. Um, and they generally were treated like second-class citizens and for a variety of reasons kept away from the mothership. And in 2008, they were granted the full favours and privileges of being full members of the Irish Times. And that was very much the way it was presented at the time, which said something about the culture of the way that digital was viewed. And I was thrown in there to be their new boss. Um, uh, unfortunately, of course, something else happened in 2008, which was that the arse fell out of the economy. And so certain plans which we had to develop digital through 2009, 2010, sort of came to a screeching halt. And we found ourselves in a state of, I think it's fair to say, kind of paralysis in terms of, in terms of developing further with, with, with our digital platforms until um, we had a change of editor uh, we sort of stabilised our uh, our economic fortunes, and we started investing back into technology and making some of the changes, which culminated in some of the things I'm talking about last year. That's a very very <coughs> quick um, s- summation of what was involved. Underneath all that, uh, there's a lot of pain. Uh, there's a few tears. There's an awful lot of sweat. Um, there's been a lot of difficulties. Uh, there've been a lot of jobs lost. Um, the Irish Times, you probably know, the ABC One figures came out last week. Uh, the Irish Times has, has dropped 30% of its circulation in seven years. If you keep doing that, you're not going to be around much longer. Um, uh, the, the bit that they don't tell you so publicly, uh, but it's true of all newspapers, not just us, is that in 2008, uh, advertising absolutely tanked. So our 
or, and it hasn't come back in any significant way. So our twin revenue pillars, the traditional two revenue pillars upon which newspapers do their stuff, um, have probably almost halved in the, space of, in the space of six or seven years. And it's my personal view that although things have stabilised, and in fact we've seen a little uplift in the quite recent past, like the last six months, is that most of that money isn't coming back. And in fact, I would go further, and I would say that I work in a dying industry. And newspapers will die. And that raises all kinds of interesting questions. You know, um, this is a fairly young audience. Probably, probably somebody, some of us have, uh, here have had to deal with death. I know in American law, uh, before the last election, they, they, the, uh, the American uh, Supreme Court deemed that uh, companies are, are human beings as well. So it, it, it can be helpful but productive in some ways to think about this as how it applies to the, uh, to the human condition. What happens to you when you know you're going to die? Well, it does focus the mind somewhat. Uh, it, it brings to the fore certain existential questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What has it all been about? It might even raise the question of, is death the end? Is there life after death? What am I going to leave behind me? And it, it also, of course, raises the question of, help, is there any medicine that can fix me or at least keep me going for a little while longer? And those are all, all, all issues which, which people in newspapers are looking at. Also, I suppose that the actually probably, uh, to be fair, the most traditional way of looking at death in modern Western society is to try and pretend it isn't happening. And newspapers do an awful lot of that too as well. And there's a lot of head, there's still a lot of head in sand that goes on. Uh, in my job and in my perception of what's happening in, in the Irish Times and more broadly, there are three legs to this thing. And they are the business, the technology, and what, for want of a better phrase these days, we call content creation, which we used to have much nicer words for, like journalism and novel writing and filmmaking and poetry and singing and dancing. But now it's called content creation, but we kind of know, know what we mean. And the business really is at the heart of it, because what's driving this existential crisis really is the business. Now, of course, these three, these three things are, are, are entirely intertwined, and you can't distinguish one for the other. But the real challenges in business, yes, there are really serious intellectual challenges to journalists' fundamental concept of what they do and why they do it and who they do it for and the benefit of it and, and all those kinds of things. And there are interesting, fascinating, very stimulating new technological platforms which are enabling us to do journalism in lots and lots of different ways. But if the basic money isn't there uh, to support those kinds of activities, well, you know, that all becomes pie in the sky quite quickly. I remember having a conversation just um, uh, a couple of months ago with a very senior editor in the Irish Times, and he was, I, I knew exactly what he was talking about. He was bemoaning the thing, he says, whenever we talk about this stuff, about the technological challenge, what we want to do about it, it's either this awful existential, you know, it's a Gutenberg moment in history and we're powerless in front of this wave which is sweeping us all away and it's all about the high philosophy of what's media all about. It's either that or it's this incredibly nuts and bolts stuff about ones and zeros and how do you get the page to look right on an iPhone versus an Android and there's nothing in between. And in a way what happens, what's happening again and again for those of us in newspapers, and I should say that my view is that everything I talk about to do with newspapers here today also applies to filmmaking, to, to the music industry, to broadcasting, and to a range of other cultural, cultural activities. One of the common factors I see again and again and again is that what you might call, I was saying this before we started, the middle gets squeezed. So what you have is 
there are utop- there are digital utopians, there are plenty of them, who say that whilst what is happening at the moment is an opening up of access to publishing platforms to thousands or millions of people who never had it before. And this is a fabulous and powerful thing and voices which were always silent are no longer silent. And to borrow a phrase from Rod, who in turn bar- borrowed it from, um, I'm not sure if it was Mao or, or Chu and Lai, Chu and Lai, let a thousand flowers bloom, Mao. Mao. Um, and that's wonderful. Except that's not really what I, um, what I see happening. And on the other hand, what I do see happening is the growth of extraordinarily large globally scaled corporations which, which, uh, which control the flow of information to a level which we've never seen before. And we all know their names. There's only about four or five, four or five of them at the moment. So the business problem underpinning what we do people need to understand. And, and frankly, journalists have always been rather snooty about the business end of the business in which they worked. So they really don't understand what it's about, and they tend to kind of zero down very quickly to things which are not unimportant, but are not actually uh, totally crucial, such as why don't people pay for content on the, on the web in the same way that they'll pay for a newspaper? We have to make them pay for content. If they did that, then everything will be all fine. Okay, it won't. I'll go into that in a bit more detail later, late, later if you like. The most interesting... Um, analysis, in my view, of what's actually happening here is, uh, is from a guy who didn't, wasn't actually writing about the media industry or about newspapers, although he has written about them more recently. He's a chap called Clayton Christensen. He is a, uh, an economist or an economic analyst in, I think, Harvard, Harvard, Harvard Business School. And he wrote a book in 1997 called The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, and The Innovator's Dilemma, I'm not sure if any of you have, have come across it at all, the kind of the thesis of the innovator's dilemma is this: that if you have an existing industry which has established itself and is, you know, is sound, on a sound footing, and it gets um, disrupted in a really fundamental and profound way, it's almost impossible for that industry to react in in the only way it can to survive and it's very likely that it will be disrupted and destroyed the kind of examples he gave are things which i really have no knowledge of whatsoever such as the american steel industry big steel which was disrupted by a new form of smelting plant which was introduced shortly after the shortly after the second world war but the fundamental theory here is that if 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 a new disruptive innovation comes along um, if you're in the kind of prime position at the time it's really, really, really difficult, if not impossible, to actually t- to combat that. Because what tends to happen is, the, the way to combat it is you have to destroy yourself. And what I mean by that is that if... Uh, an example in media is in the United States when Craigslist comes along. And American newspapers in particular, but also newspapers here, a serious stream of their, of their revenue was always from classified advertising. It used to be that if you wanted to rent an apartment or buy a second-hand car or do a whole range of other things, you had to go to the classifieds, and the classifieds were in your local newspaper. Craigslist turned that model upside down, took, was essentially a free service, and just killed classified. How do you combat it? How could you combat that? Probably the only way you could have combated that was if you were incredibly perceptive, had seen that coming, and set up your own free service, and then destroy your own business. Now think how difficult that is to do internally in an organisation, and to argue, to argue for doing that, that everything is completely counterintuitive, that you turn around and destroy your own business. I think people sometimes misunderstand the innovator's dilemma and think that what it means is that settled, established industries 
are you know become lazy or are slightly old and don't understand new phenomena and don't understand how to get down with the kids and with new technology and to develop fast enough and quick enough that's not really what Christensen's argument is at all and I have to say from my own experience that's not my experience in the Irish Times and looking at newspapers we've known for a long time that big trouble was coming I've been sitting at PowerPoint presentations for 15 years where people showed graphs that went down and down and down like that and they were based on how many 15-year-olds at the time showed any interest in newspapers, and that it was how many 20-year-olds at the time. There, there's, a famous, there's a famous photograph of commuters on the Long Island uh, Railway getting their train to work in 1958 or something, just kind of almost madmen kind, of, um, kind of time. And there's, there's three interesting things about, about them. They're all male, they all wear hats, and they all read newspapers. Oh, well, actually, and they're all white as well. Now, if you take you, you took that same photograph now, that would be that would be very different. And one of the things that you'd immediately notice, of course, apart from the hats, is there's no there's probably more hats now. Actually, hats have come back in a bit, but there definitely won't be any newspapers. But there'll be these, and there'll be these, and there'll be re-readers, and there'll be all kinds of things. So it's not that, as some people say, some people frame this as a classic, uh, you know, young people are getting stupider all the time sort of an argument. It's not that people aren't interested in stuff. It's not that people aren't consuming news. It's not that people aren't searching for information. It's just that there are better and more efficient ways of getting it now, and we need to realise that. The innovator's dilemma problem that we face in the Irish Times is that still we haven't figured out how to make money in a really effective way out of that. And the reality is we'll never make money on the scale that we traditionally did out of print. Because the thing with print was we had control of a narrow pipeline. Our big uh, printing plant out on the, uh, uh, on the M50 in Dublin at City West uh, cost millions and millions of euros to build. Nobody else is going to be able to turn around and build one very quickly. So we control the means of distribution to a certain extent, a certain proportion of print distribution in Ireland and our friends, quote-unquote, in the independent, control an even larger part and a number of other, a very small number of people control that pipe. But that pipe is now broken because anybody, you know, the pipe is now, it used to be that narrow, now that's, it's that wide. So classified is gone, various other kinds of information is gone. Uh, in my own lifetime, when I was a kid, I went to a news agent on a Saturday afternoon, and there was a football special evening paper, because that was the only way you could find out what were the scores in the football that afternoon. That seems such an absurd proposition now. You take that as a fact, and you, you roll it out across lots of other different kinds of information, not just football scores, but what's the weather going to be, to I want to play a game of some sort, to you know, what time is the movie on at, all those kinds of things. The idea of relying on a print product on, on for, for them anymore is gone. So what is a print product for? Well, people will say lots of people still buy it. Um, it's, it's a very pleasant way uh, of passing some time. Um, evidence shows that people spend a lot more time with a print product than they do with a digital product, or at least certainly up, up, up until recently. And crucially, the Irish Times still makes not far off 90% of its revenue from print, uh, d despite all the investments and all the, you know, all the moves that we've tried to make towards digital. So we are faced with that innovator's dilemma. And the reality is that we talk all the time about, we've been in big fights with, with, with government about things to do with copyright, which I, I might like to touch on a little bit later as well. And we talk all the time about how we are innovators ourselves and technological innovators. And yes, we are. And I'll tell you about some of the ways that we're, that we're innovating technically and in terms of our journalis journalism a little later. But the fact is, our, our innovations weren't disruptive innovations. But people, people distinguish between innovations um, which, which improve an existing product for example, um, and, uh, and, and I remember thinking this was a terrible thing at the time, but I've changed my mind since when Rupert Murdoch uh, moved to Wapping 
and uh, brought in an entirely new technological production system and halved his costs and got rid of the whole printing process essentially and automated it. He opened the door for uh, the other Fleet Street newspapers and other newspapers in the UK probably to survive for another 20 years because he completely changed their, their cost base by bringing in technology which had been invented 10 years before but applying it to that process in a way that had already been in the United States. And that's, that's, those are the kind of technological innovations which newspapers have, have, have often made. Um, if you compare the Irish Times now with what the Irish Times looked like 30 years ago, there's no comparison. There, there wasn't a golden age of wonderful newspapers. You can go into the Irish Times Digital Archive and for a very small sum... Um, Get uh, you know look look through the, the many years of it for you know for a day or so, you know dull looking pages with virtually no pictures on them, plenty of typos contrary to popular opinion and misspellings. Um, uh, some people are of the opinion actually that most newspapers in those days were produced by people who were half drunk uh, as they went back to produce the city edition at two o'clock in the morning after having had their second feed of pints going downing tools at nine o'clock and downing tools at eleven. Not for me to comment; I wasn't around. But they are not the glorious exemplars of, of golden age of journalism, which some people argue, argue they were. But to come back to how, how would we how would we deal with it? How would, how would we deal with the innovators' dilemma? We've tried to do it, and we've tried to do it badly in the past. And you know, we we have um, we are this year uh, we will celebrate 20 years on the web um, in September. Um, versions of the Irish Times on the web will have existed for 20 years. We were one of the first people to go online, uh, one of the first companies to go online in this part of the world. I think we were ahead of the Guardian, which kind of makes me weep when I think about it uh, at this point. We've missed an awful lot of opportunities along the way, and we've kind of invested money in the wrong places. So. Classic examples of where we failed the test of the innovator's dilemma was that we make a lot of money out of property advertising, uh, which sometimes some people, people have a problem with that, and arguably rightly so, but we never figured out how to make that stuff work on the web, and in the end we ended up having to chase our own tails and buy an already successful property website at an exorbitant price at the peak of the boom, which I don't think by any standards could be considered a, uh, a strategic business business success. The people who have, who have actually managed to take Christensen's challenge and seem to be making it work for themselves. The most obvious one or the most famous one probably right now is Netflix. Netflix is a double disruptor. When it came on the market a, a decade or more ago, it completely disrupted the existing video, um, video store model, which was run largely by Blockbuster in the States, and they killed them by bringing online subscriptions and to-your-door deliveries and an entirely different business model. They, sla they slaughtered Blockbuster, which is interesting enough in itself, but that's a trash traditional new disruptor coming in destroying an existing business. The interesting thing in more recent years, I think, is the fact that they are disrupting themselves and they're replacing that model of having a subscription and your, your DVD arrive, arriving in the post with a streaming model. And in order to do that, they need to damage their existing user base. And they've had huge problems with that at times along the time. They tried to split the two of them. They've, they've messed around with their pricing. They've pissed off an awful lot of people. And they've probably done, in fact, I know, they've done their actual profit and loss revenue, annual revenue, a huge amount of damage at times over the last three or four years in attempting to do this. But in my view, they're definitely doing the right thing. And they stand a better chance of succeeding than most. The other one, which is closer to what we do in journalism, is The Atlantic uh, magazine, which is a venerable uh, liberal uh, magazine of ideas uh, from the east coast of the United States, which was bought by a rather brash entrepreneur. Uh, it was on its last legs and was bought by a rather brash entrepreneur and moved from its, uh, its Boston headquarters, where it had been since 
since men wore wigs, down to Washington, D.C., um, set up as, an, as, as, a, as a really strong online operation as well as a print magazine. And crucially, they set up something called the Atlantic Wire, which was a very, I don't know if any of you guys uh, use it all, it's just been renamed as the Wire, actually, in the last few months. And it's, uh, the mission statement of the Atlantic Wire was to destroy the Atlantic which I think is a really interesting kind of a concept. And that is kind of how you really, you know, you really take on uh, this, this disruptor's uh, dilemma. Doing that is, is, is really, really difficult. It's really difficult really between, in a very large organization as well, uh, culture can never be underestimated, how, impor- how important culture is and how people internalize stuff um, as being essential to what they do and the way they should think about doing it without really questioning why, why that should be. I would say without blowing my own trumpet that I have some of the adva- something of an advantage here over some of my colleagues in the newsroom who essentially have come out of studying journalism, studying postgrad, and then have spent 20 or 25 years in the newsroom. And they have a certain conception of journalism. I know that Geraldine Kennedy, who I have huge admiration for, very much had this conception of journalism was the journalist as detective. It's, you know, it's Woodward and Bernstein. It's you find out a fact. It's like Columbo. You keep turning around and say, just one more thing, and you get that thing, and it's that little nugget, and you turn that into a, uh, you turn that into a story of some sort or another. And that is a huge part of what journalism is about. But it's not, it's, it's not the only part. And increasingly, in some ways, it becomes a less important part. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but it changes. If you're, if you're now producing a, a print newspaper in particular, which is really just a bunch of... Fact, in the news side of it, a bunch of facts that happened before half past nine the previous evening. Um, that's not really much of, a, much of a sales pitch. So you need to be doing something else. You need to be providing, you need to be bearing witness, so you need to be in the places where things are happening. But you also need to be giving context to why those things are happening and what's likely to happen next. And you really want to be doing what's called sense-making, which is really engaging uh, in an intellectual debate about what all this stuff actually means in a real way. And in a way that brings the, the, the overall conception of journalism a little bit away from the journalism as detective, and it's more the journalism as content creator. Sense-making, story-making, creating narratives that make sense to people of their lives. A classic example would be how badly, in my view, the Irish media dealt with the economic crash of 2008 and its aftermath, and how it's happened, why it happened, what lessons we should learn from it, and what actions we, we, we should take uh, as a result of that. And in my view, you know, none of us, broadcaster or print media, have really managed to do the proper step back on that and to really give the context that I think people need in their lives for, for, for understanding those, type, those, those types of things. So I think we have, a, we have a long way to go on that. And that relates to something which I'm, I'm sure some of, some of you people have heard about, because it's a, it's a buzzword at the moment, which is the whole concept of data journalism which is taking, uh, taking information in a way in which journalists didn't previously. The, the reality is that most journalists come from uh, an arts and humanities broadly background, and they think in terms of narrative and the word, and the word as being the, the way in which sense is made or, infor- or information or, or valuable information is found. Whereas, in fact, if you think about the crash, there is the, or, you think, or you think about debates around economic issues or political issues, 
there's there's as much information or the real information is probably to be found in the blizzard of data. And if we're talking about sense-making in the modern world, it's about going into that data and finding out what's important and distilling that and presenting that in a way to people that they can make use of in their lives, whether it be anything from how they vote to what decisions they make, what economic decisions they um, they make about their own lives. We are, we are still well behind on that. I think it probably is something to do, I don't want to be too cliched about it, but there is something to do with the Irish uh, reliance on the word above, above other, for, other forms of communication. And we're still, we're still in early days. It isn't helped by the fact that Ireland is, um, as we have seen in the last few weeks with the um, Garda Síochána issues, still a very secretive and, despite claims to the contrary, very authoritarian and establishment-rooted um, society. So our freedom of information legislation is a disgrace, in my view, and that doesn't just apply to the amount of stuff which is, which is redacted and, and kept out of the public domain when there's no good reason for it to be, but even the, the readiness of institutions of the, of, of the state to make information available in a usable way, by which I mean machine-readable, uh, where you can actually, you know, you can, take, you can take data and you can crunch it and you can analyse it and you can do various things with it and you can output it as graphics. You wouldn't believe the number of government departments who, you know, who take Excel spreadsheets, turn them into PDFs and then send out the PDFs as a response to a request for, 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 for FOI. How much of that is ignorance and how much of it is deliberate stonewalling, I can't say. Uh, there's probably different balances in different departments, but uh, it certainly suits certain people that that, that, that is being done. When I talk about newspapers facing the same challenges as, as other industries, I, I find myself sometimes at, uh, in discussion um, with my colleagues in broadcast, for example. And I should say that one of the things I'm in charge of now in my new job in the Irish Times is doing things which traditionally newspapers didn't do, but which broadcasters thought were their preserve. So we've launched five podcasts in the, uh, in the, last, uh, in the last month or so. We're producing um, about 80 to 100 videos per week. And we, we plan on growing uh, both those forms. So all of a sudden we find ourselves doing stuff that broadcasters you know, traditionally thought, thought was what they did. But what broadcasters say a lot, when I, when I hear broadcasters talk, they, they, they sound a little bit to me like what newspaper executives sounded like about five years ago. They go, yeah, the challenges are terrible. It's, it's tough out there and we know, you know we're, we're really up against it. But the great, thing is, the great thing is people are watching television more than they ever did. People are still watching linear television. Linear television means watching it live on the box in the sitting room as opposed to on your iPad or in a watch it later kind of environment. People are still watching linear television as much as they used to. And what's really exciting for us, they always say, it gets very tedious, what's really exciting for us is the, the second screen experience because increasingly people are tweeting while they're watching the show or the football match and that's really locking them in and giving us whole new ways of engaging with our audience and it's actually really exciting, to which I say bullshit. Uh, five years ago, newspaper executives were saying, yes, it's really tough, it's really challenging out here, but you know what's really brilliant? The Irish Times, for example, has a bigger readership than ever before. We used to, it was to sell 117, 118,000 newspapers, but now there's thousands of people in Australia and the United States and all over Ireland and everywhere. We have, we have one and a half million unique users per month. Think of that number, one and a half million. You know, there has to be, there has to be huge possibilities there, which there aren't, frankly. Most of those people will come to you once a month and they'll never come to you again. We can get a spike over the course of a month. Somebody puts something up on Reddit, for example, and all of a sudden 150,000 people come to an article. Skew our numbers entirely. They're never going to come back. We're never going to make any money out of them. They don't care about us. And frankly, we shouldn't care about them either because there is no long-term relationship there. And deep engagement with a, with, with a small core of users is far more important to us than, the, than, than those broad figures. So 
So, but, but people get dazzled by the numbers, partly because those, those numbers, those kind of data numbers on the face of it seemed, seem to look very good. And you would think, well, there has to be some way of, of, you know, of, of, of turning that into a viable business or a viable relationship. Surely we can become a global brand. And the Irish Times and certain other Irish organisations in particular have been bedazzled by the notion of the diaspora. Because in a way, they thought that was, you know, that was going to be their way out without confronting the innovator's dilemma. You'd hold on to your traditional print audience in Ireland, and they'd still go down to the local shop, and they'd still pay for their Irish Times at the same price as previously. And there was this whole new business opportunity because of the diaspora. Mary Robinson said, the diaspora exists. The candle's in the window for them. There's, you know, there's half, of the, you know, half of the Americans call themselves Irish and stuff like that. There must be something we can do with that. Well, you know, they call themselves Irish in St. Patrick's Day. But the person who calls himself Irish in the, in the U.S. census actually has a Czech granny and, and a grandfather who came from somewhere that used to be called Ruthenia, but now is in some non, unknown part of the Soviet Union. And somebody says, Irish is shorthand for white in the United States in some ways. And really, in any sense of them wanting to know what Enda Kenny said about job creation in Ireland on a Thursday or uh, what happened in the National Hurling League um, yesterday, no, 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 they're not going to come anywhere. I, I'm interested in some brands who are trying to go global. By brands, I mean newspapers, really, who are trying to go global. Two, two in the United, two in the United Kingdom, who are often seen as the uh, as the exact opposite in terms of what they're about. But in a way, their strategy is is, is funnily enough, is quite similar. Are the Mail and the Guardian. So, the Mail is the phenomenon of international English language newspapers online in the last five years, as I'm sure you know, and it's. Uh, Everybody looks at it at one point or another because it really works and it's really entertaining. It turns it turns your stomach, of course, as well. But you know, so so, so do all the best. So do all the best ideas. It uh, from a business point of view, it's based on scale. It's based on being a global English language brand all over the world and not charging for that content, but being just so bloody ginormous that there will be enough advertising to, to, to sustain what they do. And they do it at a relatively low cost. And also, very importantly, being a, a different, not being a replica of what they do in the newspaper. Um, so you go to the newspaper if you want to give off about gypsies and Romanian migrants, and you come to the website for uh, pap shots of Kim Kardashian's knickers. It's a brilliant business plan, and off they go, and we'll see how they do. The Guardian, very differently, are essentially in the same game because they're also after scale. They're looking to translate... The, the core of what The Guardian about is about, which is the liberal broadsheet UK newspaper owned by a trust rather than a private proprietor, into a global brand for what they call progressive values. And that, that may or may not work. It's, it, it certainly worked in terms of them getting uh, a, a, a huge global profile, which they, didn't, which they didn't have 10 years ago, and finding themselves a niche first in the United States, and more recently they've set up Guardian Australia, and they're, they're doing that in a couple of other territories as well. Irish Times is a very close relationship with the Guardian, so I find myself talking to them quite a lot. I admire what they're trying to do. I, I, I particularly admire the fact that it's rooted in, it, it directly rooted in the values that they stand for. There's a kind of coherence there. They've taken their own DNA and thought quite hard about what it might mean uh, in the new digital space. And they believe that, uh, and I think they're right here, they believe that it also means a commitment to, um, to free speech, to digital openness, Hence their relationship with WikiLeaks, their Edward Snowden, their uh, anti-NSA campaign. All those things chime perfectly, I think, with, with, with The Guardian as a brand. I hope it doesn't sound too cynical to keep talking about it as a brand. But I, I think it does make sense because it's, it's, it's part of what they are. I remember um, I had a conversation with a couple of them there um, about this time last year when the 
Savita Halapanavar story was absolutely, absolutely at its peak, and they were asking me about it and the the ins and outs of Irish Irish politics around reproductive rights and those kinds of stuff, and what was the what was the position of the Irish Times in relation to that? And I said, well, you know, the Irish Times' position is broadly speaking is in the you know is in the progressive women's rights uh, camp on this and they kind of pushed me and they said well what do you mean broadly speaking and I said yes we do that's what we reflect but we do reflect some other views within our op-ed which is which is what what people expect and I could see they kind of felt that we were uh, and again this may seem a little bit hard-hearted in relation to a tragedy but that we were kind of missing a missing a trick here because that you know from their point of view that would be a classic way to absolutely reinforce the point this is what we stand for this is who our audience is we believe in women's reproductive rights we will go out and campaign for this, which is not quite what the Irish Times does. Now, the reality is that although the Irish Times is the closest thing in the Irish market to what the Guardian stands for, it isn't the Guardian. And as various historians of it um, over the years have pointed out, it, uh, it, it tries to, it has always tried to have its cake and eat it, is one way you could put it, or you could say it doesn't necessarily represent that progressive niche in the same way, in, in Ireland, in the same way as the, Gar- as, as, as the Guardian does in the UK. I mean, the history of the Irish Times. Uh, I'm not sure how, how much you know about it, but you know its its roots are in it being a you know a, um, a bourgeois Dublin Protestant newspaper for the mercantile classes in the late 19th century, and then being a my, minority interest newspaper for a strange combination of kind of decaying Church of Ireland clerics around the country and the very small uh, Dublin Bohemian Bohemian literati of the 1940s and 1950s, and then was reinvented quite cleverly by two editors, first Douglas Gageby. Uh, and then Conor Brady, but not, and certainly attached itself, for example, in, in, in Douglas Gageby's appointment of a range of crusading, powerful women writers in the 1970s and 1980s, and in turn by Brady aligning the newspaper on one side of the kind of key culture war debates that happened in the 80s and 90s around divorce and contraception and so on and so forth, and also in a kind of slightly anti-Fianna Fáil kind of a position, but much more broad and not necessarily as, as left of left of centre as the Guardian has tended, has, has tended to position itself. Now, that's one of the challenges, I think, for us. The reason I mention that anecdote about the Guardian is that one of the challenges in the internet age is the challenge to the whole concept of a general interest newspaper. Because, you know, I don't read a general interest newspaper anymore, and I work in newspapers. I kind of read the Irish Times, but I'm kind of... There's a lot of other stuff to read, so I probably don't read in the Irish Times as much as, a, as much as I used to. My newspaper, to be honest, is Twitter. Twitter brings me a couple of hundred people who I respect, pointing me to the best stuff about the stuff that I'm interested in. Uh, I press on the Twitter link. It saves it in Pocket. I don't know if you use Pocket, but uh, it just saves the article into an offline reading mode, strips out all the ads and craps and all, crap and all that stuff that might go to pay my wages were it an Irish Times article. And that's the, way, that's the way in which I read stuff. Plus, I have a couple of digital subscriptions to a couple of, ma- to, to, to a couple of magazines. So what's a newspaper for anymore? The traditional notion of a newspaper, this place where you could get everything from the analysis of what happened in yesterday's rugby match to what happened in the courts yesterday to opinion about various types of things, kind of sustained a number of things which I think most people would agree were worthwhile. Within that big mix and gathering, it's sustained things which were not necessarily commercially attractive in their own right. The Americans talk about the car dealer in New Jersey needs to buy the full-page ad for his um, for his cars, so he ends up, despite himself, funding the bureau in Baghdad, which is very expensive to run. Now he doesn't give a shit about the bureau in Baghdad, 
And if you break that link, he'll be only too happy. And he has a way of communicating directly with his potential audience. Well, then he'll be delighted that he's not wasting money on funding a Baghdad bureau anymore, because that's not something that uh, that he is interested in. So that kind of that that old newspaper proposition, which somebody uh, once described as um, "come for the crossword, stay for the war crime," uh, is kind of is kind of breaking down. And it means that we're going to have to think in in really fundamental ways of what what journalism is going, how journalism is going to be sustained if we accept, which I do believe is the case, that journalism is a necessary and worthwhile and will continue to be a necessary and worthwhile part of a properly functioning uh, civic society. In relation to that, lest you think I'm I'm, I'm too obsessed with the profit and loss, although I am quite obsessed by it, newspapers exist for a variety of reasons and making a profit is only one of them. If you look at our friends across the water in the UK, and you look at the, the Fleet Street broadsheets, how many of them actually make money or have made money for many years? The Guardian is essentially funded, has been essentially funded by a, the astute purchase of a, uh, of a car sales website about 10 years ago. It's been losing money for many years, but it's been sustained because of that. And that's fine. Why does anybody have a problem with that? The Independent, which is on its last legs, but is owned by a Russian oligarch, and needs another sugar daddy if it's, going to, if it's going to survive at all, and certainly has no prospect of making money whatsoever. Rupert Murdoch bought the Times of London in 1982, and by all accounts, he has lost money on it in every year in the 32 years since, so he owns it for other reasons than making a profit. Now, you may not like those reasons, but he owns them for other reasons than making a profit. The Telegraph is the closest thing to a profitable entity, although I gather it hasn't been in great shape over the last year, the last couple of years or so. Equally, in the United States, the kind of great newspapers of the East Coast, the Washington Post and the New York Times, yes, they've made money for their owners from time to time, but they're owned really by these Southern or uh, Ivy League families who kind of think of it as a duty rather than, a, rather than an ownership or something. Of course, that can go horribly wrong, as we saw with the, with the, with the Wall Street Journal a few years ago again. But the re- reality is in, in that, and that's even with, without touching on the whole issue of public service broadcasting and public service content and the way in which that's funded. People do journal, people manage to do journalism for a variety of reasons than just turning a profit, and I think that is something worth bearing in mind into the future when we when we look at uh, when we look at new ways of of doing journalism. But the general interest newspaper appealing to a broad uh, to a broad readership is just under huge threat because of the fact that everything is getting unbundled is the is the jargon phrase about it so you decide now this is my favorite film critic this is my favorite correspondent in kiev this is my favorite you know whatever it might be and you you make your own newspaper essentially and i know that's uh, that, that that's what i do myself i haven't really talked about um technology and technology is a funny one you know it's um again journalists coming from an arts and liberal humanities background tend to get scared of it um quite quickly Equally, people who work in um, business management, executive end of things, tend to look at it tend to look at it in a slightly skewed kind of a way. And the reason I say that is because technology is at the heart now of what we do in a way it never was before. Yes, we you know we use technology. We were always you know we had te- technologically driven delivery systems. We always had printing plants and men who drove vans and you know bookkeepers and all kinds of other stuff. And we improved that technology, and it became you know, more complex and we moved to on-screen desktop publishing and all types of things like that. But that was all about technology as a service. To me, the most fundamental change in what's happened in the digital revolution of the last quarter of a century is that technology has moved from being a service to being an integral part of the thing or the product or 
however you want to want to characterize it and it that's a difficult thing for organizations and indeed for for individuals to get to get their heads around partly that's a generational problem if you're not kind of down you know getting your hands dirty digitally dirty you don't necessarily see that and you just think it's something that your kids do and you don't quite understand it and there's a bit of technophobia involved in involved in that too but there's also it's an analog world's um, understanding of what technology is about. I remember reading a couple of quite interesting analytic pieces about the fiasco that was the Obamacare launch there last um, last autumn. And they made this point about what happened there and the, the whole disaster of the way the websites didn't work and everything crashed and everything was awful. And they, they used it as, a, as an example of how organisations can get things wrong, that managers go this is it, we've got the green light, I've got the budget, it's time to go, I'm setting a date, don't tell me we can't do it for that date, just work harder and then we'll do it on that date and I'm going out there to announce it's going to happen on that date so it better bloody happen or you're in trouble. And the technological people go, okay, and they go, and they go away. And it proves not to be possible because there is huge complexity involved in this. And the reality is the product is the technology from the point of view of the people who are access exploring, uh, investigating, making purchasing decisions about a new, a brand new healthcare system. It's all about the interface, the user experience. Does it work? Is it reliable? Does it work across all these devices? Does it work if this happened? Does it work? It needs to be, have the hell tested out of it, as anybody who, who deals in these areas knows. And if some beacon of hope has decided that this is going to happen on 25th of September, regardless of the, uh, you know, regardless of, of the te technological side, well, then it's going to fall flat on its face. And we've seen that in the Irish Times, in thankfully in somewhat smaller ways, but it does happen. We did um, we did a website redesign last year, which was a nightmare, and what it, it was a nightmare for a couple of reasons. One was it happened simultaneously with a change of our entire production platform. So we did the two things at the same time. Never do that. It's really it just it just it's too much. It breaks your organisation, and it means you end up taking shortcuts which, uh, which, which you shouldn't take and which you, you, you suffer from in the end. The, uh, the other thing we didn't do because of pressure of time, uh, because we were all tied into this huge rolling technological process of, of, of upgrading our system, was we didn't, uh, we didn't test it enough, by which I mean not technically test so much as test the user experience, which is you know doing UX testing, as they call it, where you bring people through the pages, say, get reactions, say, what do you do? Does that make sense? Would you prefer it to be that way? Where do you find problems? And actually chart what they do and how they behave on the screens and the various kinds of screens. We didn't do that to the extent that we should have because of pressure of time, because we, because we took on too much. We complicated matters for ourselves even more, when I look back on it now, I weep actually, by deciding at the same time we wouldn't just redesign the website, but that we would make it a responsive design. Uh, websites are generally moving to responsive design at the moment so that they reconfigure and, and present in the appropriate way um, in, 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 on mobile screens and so on and so forth. So we did that, but a website redesign is complex enough to begin with. A website um, responsive design redesign multiplies that complexity by a factor of three or four immediately. Because every page has to be thought of in several different in several different contexts. How does it behave now when it's on an iPad and portrait? How does it behave when you go like that? How does it behave when it's on that? Um, and then the commercial people go in and say, "Where are our ads?" And you go, "How does that do to that? How does that?" So you're playing four-dimensional chess while trying to make the thing make the design work. You can lose sight very quickly of does it look nice or does it or, or does everything work right? So anyway, we launched and we had a a, a very negative reaction to it. 
I think probably in terms of the look and feel, what we did was we probably went too far for what is still a relatively conservative Irish market in that we went, we thought more about this than we thought about, uh, than we thought about desktop. And the reality is that even though the migration to mobile is happening incredibly fast, it's not happening so fast that the majority of our traffic, just about, is still on desktop. Also, when people think about a website design, you know, we have 120 index pages or more, probably a lot more actually, on our website. But people generally usually, when they think about a website design, they think about the home page. It's like the front page of the whole thing. And it's, what does that look like? And the reality is home page is about you know, 25 to 30% of all our traffic. So it is crucial. So if they look at the home page for the first minute, they decide they don't like it, well, then they don't like it. Whatever else, whatever else there may be in there. So what we had to do was some retrieval on that design very quickly. It wasn't helped by the fact that our implementation of the new production system, um, the new production system kept falling over. There was a lot of shouting. And there were a lot of um, plane flights. There were a lot of uh, very fraught conference calls. We had the complexity of the newspaper element of it being built in Milan, Germany, and Sweden. The website part of it being built in Malaysia. Uh, different time zones. Uh, people, what, five or six different languages. It really is uh, e e extremely painful. And really, in retrospect, what I would learn from it is we should have started with the technology and we didn't start with the technology. But just to talk a little bit more about that process, because it is interesting in terms of what it is we're trying to do. What we were trying to do with that was to um, take our articles and turn them into something that was more fit for purpose for the digital age. So um, previously, up until March of last year, we would, you know, a journalist would write an article, it would go, on to, go into the newspaper, that would be um, sucked in as a feed from our slightly antiquated 10-year-old then uh, newspaper system, and it would be content uploaded. We had content uploaders every night who then published that out on the site. So content uploader is the worst job description you could possibly have. I have a picture of them with yellow overalls and shovels, and it's not actually that, that far away from what they did. It was an incredibly crude system, and it meant there was no underlying metadata. There was, no, um, there was, no, there was nothing on it at all except from blank, blank text. So what we wanted to do was to get our journalists to start thinking about what's the key data in an article, where should it go, what's its categories, what should it relate to. And we now have the tools to do that. We're not using those tools properly yet, and I still think we have a, we have a, way, to, we have a way to go with that. You have to remember that all these things and all these things we're asking our journalists to do are against the backdrop of a series of cutbacks, both in terms of the wages people do, the hours that they work, and the number of people there are to do, to, to do that work. And then we're asking them to do more and more and more all the time. So, so that is difficult too. But what we have done with the technology, now we've uh, nearly a year on, and we've managed to, to stabilize it, is that we have the kind of train tracks. Our, our lead developer had this rather fancy metaphor, which uh, sounded good at the time anyway, which was that uh, in Tuscany, apparently, in, in the 1850s, they built the Tuscan railroad system. And anybody who's been to Tuscany will know that it's very hilly. And they built the railways up and down over these quite steep hills. And the, the gradients were too steep for the trains of the time to go up. But they built the train tracks up those, those hills on the basis that the trains would soon be built, which would be able to go up and down those train tracks. Um, and something of the same concept underlies what, what we're doing. The proof is in the pudding, and it'll be, remain to be seen how it's done. However, the, the upside of it is, is that our traffic and things like our searchability and the amount of times our content is shared through social media have improved enormously, certainly over the, over the, over the last three months or so. I should say something about these. The internet changed everything, but these change everything possibly even more, uh, even more profoundly. 
and um, some of the some of the challenges we've struggled with for 20 years in moving from print to digital, we're now faced with in the move from desktop to these. I was at a, a newspaper conference in Berlin uh, last October, and somebody had a phrase which was that desktop is the new print. In other words, everybody's looking at these big grey boxes that people, you know, if you go into our newsroom office, everybody's there, big grey box, looking at the big grey box on the screen. Somebody says, what's happening on the website? There's the website. That's what it looks at. Increasingly, our users aren't looking at that at all. They're looking at, at these or they're, or they're looking at that. And we need to refocus again. We're faced with exactly the same set of problems. Uh, not that we've even fixed those that we were faced with in the print digital migration because uh, the people who sell advertising are going, we can't sell advertising on mobile, the screens are too small, there's no way to make money out of it, why would we invest money in this thing, we need to just focus on the thing that we know we can sell that. So it's an exact replication of the conversations we were having about print to digital, you know, 10 years ago. So we need to start getting over that hump and one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment is to get huge screens into the newsroom so this stuff is really in people's faces and that at all times they can see information that they can't avoid information to come back with the to come back to the the point i made at the start about people don't want to think about the fact they're going to die they don't want to think about all this stuff as well so you really need to force it into their faces and show them this is what your article on your website looks like on a, on a mobile device this is what your competitors are doing right now this is what the data tells you about what your users are at right now. We do have that in the room at the moment, but I want to make that bigger and in people's faces. People, I, there are things I'd like to do that I'll never get away with in the Irish Times because it's quite a conservative organisation. Gawker in the States has a thing called the Big Blue Board where um, they, um, they have it's like, it's like a top 20 all the time, uh, real-time top 20 of what articles are being read, and it also shows uh, how every journalist is doing. That's never, that's never going to work in the Irish Times. And it's, it's, it's deeply unfair, probably not appropriate to the Irish Times. What I'd like to do is just be a troublemaker uh, to, 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 to see what effect it would have. People, journalists still, for the most part, most of my colleagues don't look at stuff with that level of granular detail. And if they did, they would in some respects be, um, be horrified by what actually listen, what our, what our readers are interested in, or our online readers anyway. But they'd also be informed and can make decisions. Using data doesn't have to mean that you go chasing after the lowest common denominator all the time. You can understand about what are the things that work all right, and you can make decisions on, on the basis of that. It's also, I had, a, I remember I had a big argument with Geraldine when she was still editor. She said she hated everything to do with the internet, frankly. And uh, she, she would say, kittens and skateboards or whatever it was. But you do not know that the print readers are not interested in exactly the same thing because you have not, the only difference is that we can measure it. I'd say the likelihood is that the, the, that the print readers want exactly the same stuff. There is certainly no evidence to the contrary. The only hard data we have here is the online stuff and it should be respected and you should, you should dig, in, dig into what it is. I love data. Data is uh, amazing. You know, you can actually, you can just become addicted to, to, to data actually in terms of understanding not just what your most read is, but who's reading it, what time of the day they're reading it at, how long they stay on an article, what they do after they've come to an article, all those kinds of bits of information, when you start putting them together and chopping them and changing them in different ways, tell you a very interesting story. They tell you a really interesting story about mobile, and it's not all a bad story either, because our old business model was terrible, um, by which I mean our, our old digital business model. I got into 
I don't know if anybody's tweeting here. I hope not. I got into trouble last year because um, I was at a uh, Irish Internet Association meeting about uh, internet advertising, and I, I said that display advertising, which is what you see on all newspaper websites, the banners and the square bits and all that, I said display advertising had proven not to be just a disappointment, but a complete crock of shit for everybody. The, uh, the newspapers, the advertisers, the advertisers' clients. It is terrible. You know, you know yourself, you look at this stuff, it just gets in the way. It's either invisible, you train your eye to make it invisible really fast, or else it's been made so obtrusive that it makes it impossible for you to actually enjoy looking at wherever you're looking at. There is no sweet spot between those two things. It's either, it's either one or the other. When I became on Loud Editor, first of all, I, I kind of, I, what I thought was that um, oh, the advertising industry, it's stuck in its old ways. They, just, you know, they won't migrate to digital because digital you know, is something new that they're frightened of. You know, they've really got to, you know, they've got to get their act together and start advertising. I've changed my mind on that now. You get much more bang for your buck out of a decent print, old school print newspaper ad or a broadcast ad than you do out of the do out of these dis, uh, display ads. So we kind of we, we need to move on we move on from those. But the other part of part of this is that they didn't deliver a business for us. But also people's behaviour on our website in the traditional old desktop relationship really wasn't particularly heartening. We had two big peaks every day. One was at nine a.m. in the morning, Monday to Friday, and the other one was at one p.m. And that really what that really meant was that. People shuffled into work with their Americano and they sat down and they click, 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 control, alt, delete. Uh, before I start work, I'll see if there's anything new on the website. Doodly, 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 doodly. Oh, here comes the boss. Bang, I'm out and I'm gone. Now, they were, you know, visits were a minute, two minutes, maybe three minutes long. People might look at one or two articles. Same thing, one o'clock, they're back, plastics, ham sandwich, another Americano, have another check in again, again, gone after two or three minutes. And that was really it. What you get is really interesting spikes. Now, the busiest time of the day here, I'm sure this isn't a surprise to you if you think about it, um, 7.15 a.m. in the morning. It's a commuting product. You're on the bus. You're on the train. Hopefully not driving. Um, and uh, and, and that, is the, that is the busiest time of the day. But what's interesting is that there's another peak, and it's becoming a more and more significant peak, and it runs from about 9.30 in the evening till 11 o'clock at night. And that's the traditional, I'm watching prime time, I'll check in, see if there's anything new on the website. Increasingly coming to us through Facebook or Twitter, directly to an article, rather than coming through the front door. We've had some really, we're doing some really interesting experiments with getting what you might call the, the softer end of features and things like that, and pushing them through Facebook at 12 o'clock at night, half 12 at night. We figured out there's something we call the iPad in bed audience. Um, I don't know. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this as a phenomenon, and, and you know, we still need to think about exactly what kind of content might suit the iPad in bed audience. But it's definitely there, and it's definitely growing. And what's good about all this is that unlike the guy at the desk, guy, the guy or the girl at the desk with their Americano, these people are staying more than two minutes or three minutes. When they're on a, an iPad at eight or nine o'clock in the evening, they're much more likely to stay for ten minutes or fifteen minutes. Certainly, a length of time which is much longer or closer to the kind of engagement that we traditionally know that, that, that we have in print products. So, to my from, from my point of view, I think that the the key metrics, which are loyalty, people who come to you on a regular basis because they value what they have and they don't just come once a month; they come at least at least three or four times per week. And engagement, which is people come to you and they don't just come to you for one article and that's it, but they actually read another article and they see some related content and we create what's called good stickiness on the site. Those are the things that allow us 
to look at creating some kind of a business model which will probably be based on a number of different strands. I can't avoid talking about, obviously, the whole paid content thing. There's a huge debate around, around all that at the moment. Irish Times is on the record that we're going to be moving to a paid content model. I can't say exactly what it is. In fact, I can't say that we exactly know what it is right now. But what, what we are doing is we're building the technical underlying infrastructure to do it. My personal view is that the best model for us is a is a metered is a metered model as opposed to a freemium model, for example, or a hard paywall of the sort that that, that News Corp or um, Times newspapers have. But one of the things that concerns me about this project for newspapers, the way the newspaper people think about it, is I know just looking at them, some of them think it's the golden bullet. This is how they're going to replace the existing model of selling newspapers. That there'll be some like for like substitution, and I know for a fact that that is not going to happen. There will be a, there is a revenue stream there if you play if you play your game right with a good well run metered paywall model for heavily engaged loyal users uh, you can you can get some revenue but it's not going to replace uh, it's not going to replace the print revenue and the fact is that this incredibly simple model that we had previously where you had two revenue streams you sold newspapers and you sold ads in those newspapers is going if, if we're going to survive in, as some kind of new entity is going to have to be replaced by multiple revenue streams. And people have talked a lot about these over the last few years. Of course they include advertising, but they probably include much more targeted advertising. Because one of the reasons why display advertising is so shit is because, yes, advertising is moving online, but advertising isn't moving to display ads on, on newspaper websites or other websites. It's going to focused direct. It's going to the people who use digital at its most powerful and its most strong. And those people are Google and Facebook and the people who hold the data about you and the people who, when you use that, as I did just here, used Google Maps to get here. Google now know a little bit more about me. They know I wanted to get from a hotel to a certain location. Now, how they use that, of course, is a matter for law, and I think that'll be very interesting in the future as well. But Google and Facebook know so much more about me than the Irish Times does, and then they turn that into money because you are the product, of course, in those, uh, in those so-called, so-called free services. And while I don't particularly want us to go all the way down the road of getting into exactly that business model, we need to know more about our users. So, for example... When you talk about metered, registration, all those kinds of things, to my mind, there's as much value in getting our users to give us some information about who they are as there is in them giving us some money. So it's not just about handing over subscription money and that giving us revenue. If we know more about our users, it allows us to target them with better advertising that perhaps won't annoy them, but might even, God forbid, be some use to them. It wouldn't be a bad thing. So as, as, as well as doing other things. There's a lot of talk about newspapers using their leverage and using their strength to do other stuff as well, like run events and conferences and training and so on and so forth. Mixed, mixed results on that so far. What is happening, though, is a really, really profound moment of change. So um, nothing should be taken for granted. I, I used to scoff slightly at this description of the Gutenberg moment, uh, this idea that what's happening is as profound as what happened at the moment of the invention of the printing press, which in turn led to the Reformation and the Renaissance and a lot of other bloody stuff as well. Um, but increasingly I'm persuaded that that, is, that, that, um, that it is as profound as that. And, and if I believe that, well then I also have to say that I, uh, I really have no idea what's going to happen. To come back to my opening point about death, uh, I am an agnostic humanist. So just as in death I have no idea what happens after it, I have no idea what's coming next either. <laughs>
This is just part of Hugh Linehan's lecture. The second part, looking at the law surrounding the digital news operation, will be available shortly at podacademy.org.